welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC True History of the Olympics. I am your host, Bridget Natalie, and with me is my very special co-host. I'm Sarah McSorley. And recurring guest. Uh, Frank Costello. Okay. Thanks for having me back for part two. Yes. <laughs> and we're uh, part two of the 1920 Olympics is what we're talking about today. And we finished up after... Uh, I powered through after losing a contact <laughs> because of the freaking figure jumping horses. I think it's important we reiterate. I know it's it's been another little bit of a gap between episodes probably, right? So we need to yeah. go back and recap. There's an event where you just jump over horses <laughs> and then you jump onto horses from multiple angles. Yes. And this is the entirety of the event. Yes. Uh, but there was a lot of different ways you could jump on a horse. Or over, or uh, around and through. Through? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa, hey. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so we're picking up with the modern pentathlon. The, there's two pentathlon events, the modern, which you remember from our 1912 episodes were all the, like, events that a officer in the war would have to do, which was, I'm sure, much more romantic in 1912, and then after <laughs> World War One. Uh, they were still doing it. Um, the modern pentathlon was the same event as the last time. Pistol shooting, swimming, fencing, riding cross-country, and running cross-country. There were 23 competitors from eight countries participating, and it took place from August 23rd to the 27th. We don't have a lot of records from this event. Almost nothing was written about it. We do know that, once again, the Swedes completely dominated and swept the first floor four places. After the first event, shooting, Eric de Laval held the first place. Uh, day two was swimming, and at the end of the day, Gustav Dreisen, uh, Dearson had took the lead and would hold it the rest of the competition, going on to win gold, with De Laval winning silver, and Grosta Renault, there's a lot of umlauts, winning bronze. <laughs> Robert Sears looked, of the U.S. looked like he might spoil the sweep when he was in third place after the third day, having done very well in fencing, but he did very poorly in riding and cross-country running and ended in eighth place. I do like the image of these pentathlons more when you're doing everything back to back to back. Like, ride your horse, jump off of it into the water, swim, come out with a gun, shoot. Like, this is to be one continuous athletic display. That's what they do with triathlon. Right, and that's why triathlons are good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, polo. Polo was held in the town of Ostend, which is on the coast of Belgium, about 119 kilometers or a little under 75 miles west of Antwerp. Four nations entered, listed in order of finishing, gold through fourth, uh, Great Britain, Spain, the U.S., and Belgium. Both the British and American teams were made up entirely of military officers who were World War I veterans. The only other noteworthy things that happened were that on the second day of the tournament, when Belgium faced Great Britain, the weather was apparently terrible. Very cold, rainy, and windy. Also, each time... Each team was allowed to bring four alternates, but only Spain took advantage of this, and they only had one. I can't imagine that there are very many officers not veterans of World War One at this particular time. Yeah, unless you enlisted right after the war. This is a really, probably the better time to yeah. join them. Yeah, yeah, 1920, because you could finish your career before World War Two started. <laughs> Uh, rowing and sculling. Um, we're getting up to, yeah, your, uh, extra there's Frank. The rowing and sculling events were held on a much better course than had been available in Stockholm at a location that was closer to Brussels than to Antwerp. I read the excerpt describing it. 
Right. I mean, we just said it was a better location, but uh, maybe not quite perfect, as noted here. Quote, the surroundings were not picturesque. On the right bank, looking from start to finish, is a road, is a rough pave road, bounded on the right side by a dreary, dusty wall and an odiferous ditz. On the left bank of the course is an almost continuous line of factories, some of which discharge streams of hot water from their con condensers into the murky water of the canal. The average depth of the water was from 15 to 20 feet, and compared to the Thames, it was a little heavy to row on. From an artistic or picnic point of view, it was unprepossessing. <laughs> From a purely business point of view of boat racing, it was as good and as fair a test of the merits of a competition as is possible to imagine. There was never for one single instant the slightest advantage in either station. So, so it was good in terms of like... You can time a race to it pretty well. Yeah. But everyone watching it is probably having a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> There were 136 athletes from 14 nations competing in five events. New teams included Brazil and Czechoslovakia, which did not exist before the war. Of the it doesn't exist now. Yeah, it doesn't now. Uh, of the 15 medals available, the U.S. won the medal race, netting four medals, including three gold. The other six nations that medaled got one or two. The events were single skulls, double skulls, coxed pairs, coxed fours, and coxed eights. We're going to talk about Singles, the single skulls last because there's something pretty incredible in that story. And it's not just grabbing a boy off the street because that's not incredible. That's, that's normal. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's how the sport is played. Yeah. It's probably happened a dozen times and it's not even written down in the history it's, books on this. It's actually in the rules that you have to do that. I don't think that was codified until the 40s. <laughs> uh, but some other bits of interest. In the Coxed Eights, the final was between the U.S. and Great Britain. They were both heavy favorites and had little trouble in the qualifying matches. But the final was brutal. Britain had an early lead, a little over half a boat length ahead at the halfway mark. The Americans made their move at 1,700 meters, but did not catch the British until 50 meters to the finish. The Americans won by eight-tenths of a second, even though the British crew almost stopped before the end due to exhaustion. Canada was a favorite in Coxed Fours, but had terrible luck with equipment. First, their boat never arrived in Antwerp, and they had to borrow one. Then, right before their heat in the semifinals, one of their riggers cracked. They tried to alert the starter, but he ignored them. They still managed to lead briefly, but then the rigger completely broke, and they had to finish the race with only three oars. They did not advance to the finals. I'm sort of picturing, like, the boat race. I think, was it like a Simpsons joke when he has the starter gun and just shoots one of the rafts with it <laughs> so that it sinks? <laughs> Pretty much. Switzerland took gold in that event. Nothing particularly noteworthy happened in Cox Pairs, although it was the one event in which the Americans did not medal at all. Italy won silver, France silver, Italy won gold, France silver, and Switzerland bronze. Double skulls was won by John Kelly Sr. and Paul Costello. Hey. <laughs> Who we'll hear, we'll hear from again in 1924, and Costello one more time in 1928 with new partner Charlie McElvain. There were at least Four favorites in the single skulls, including Swiss rower Max Schmidt, who had recently won the European Championship. He didn't even advance past the first round, losing to another favorite, Jack Beresford Jr. of Great Britain. Another was New Zealander Clarence Hadfield Darcy, who had won the, in the 1919 Inter-Allied Games. And finally, Jack Kelly Sr. of the United States. Beresford had won the Diamond Skulls in 1920. Jack Kelly Sr. had not been allowed to compete in the Diamond Skulls. There... There's a story that it was because his job as a bricklayer made him a professional, 
But this is apocryphal. Good, because it's not a professional, like, it's a professional athlete of that yeah. thing. You can You're, be a professional some other no, thing. No, yeah. you can't have a job. <laughs> I, maybe that's true in the, like, horse jumping games, but, like... You can't have a job to get into that sport. But the actual reason... You have to be able to own up to six horses. <laughs> that you can jump over and then into the water. <laughs> <laughs> the actual reason isn't much better. Kelly was a member of the Vesper Boat Club affiliate... Boat Club of Philadelphia and the stewards at Henley would not accept entrance from that club due to allegations of professionalism among the members made in 1905. Professionalism again meaning they were fielding paid. professionals yeah. in, in, yeah. in yeah. amateur These events. guys had a professional manner and I did not <laughs> yeah. enjoy it. Far... <laughs> Alright, but we want to talk about Jack Kelly Sr. for a minute. Uh, because this has a connection to something unexpected. Uh, Jack Kelly Sr. is considered to be the greatest scholar in the, U- the U.S. ever produced. Jack's, Jack Beref- Beresford Jr. is considered the greatest scholar Great Britain ever produced. So when they faced off in the final, it was something to see. Beresford took the lead early and held it until Kelly made his move a few hundred meters from the finish. They were neck and neck until the end when Kelly managed to pull ahead and win by one second with a final time of 7 minutes 35 seconds. Kelly would return to the Olympics, but so would Beresford. He will be appearing through 1936. Uh, Kelly's children were also remarkable people. Jack Kelly Jr. would also become an Olympic scholar and appear in the Olympics from 1948 through 1960. And his daughter was Grace Kelly. (laughs) the Academy Award-winning actress who went on to marry Prince Rainier III of Monaco, becoming Princess of Monaco. Okay. But how good was she at sculling? (laughs) Was she professional? Uh, That might have been the problem. She was, in fact, better than her brother, but a professional, so not allowed to participate in the Olympics. All right. That is not a real historical anecdote for those listening to the podcast. Do not believe the words that I say. <laughs> Only believe the well-researched words of the primary host. Uh, rugby. There was only one rugby game between France and the U.S. The French team was made up of rugby players from four different clubs all near Paris. The American team was made up of college football players from Stanford and Santa Clara, California. One of them, Rudy Schultz, wrote about it for a local paper, which is the excerpt on page 232. I think you have it. Yep. It's a long one. Oh boy. There's no jumping on a horse, so I think I can get through it. Yes. We'll see. <laughs> about the game. It started at 5 p.m., time here for all big matches, and there was a crowd of about 20,000 present, despite the fact that it was raining. At a council of war, we decided that because the ground was wet and slippery and the ball likewise, we would make it a forward game. The French tried a backfield game, and they lost, although they were fast. The slippery ball and field proved their undoing. Our forwards outweighed the French easily, and Babe Slater was a wonder in the lineouts, as was Mahoney. Fish and Tilden. We in the backfield didn't have one passing rush, but our defense was superb, and Tippleton did not have one tackle to make. Those from Santa Clara in the final lineup were James Fitzpatrick, John Muldoon, John O'Neill, and myself. Bill Muldoon and James Winston did not play. Score end of the first half was nothing-nothing. Middle of second half, our forwards dribbled to the French's 10-yard line, and then we marked a kick directly in front of the goal, and Dink Templeton put it over 3-0. Latter part of the second half, we dribbled to their 5-yard line, and when the French first five fumbled, Joseph Hunter picked it up and fell over the line, converted. Final score, 8 to nothing. 
So good for them, and good for him having something interesting to put into the school paper. <laughs> After the Olympics, this American rugby team toured France and played four games. They won the first three games, and finally, in Paris, a French national team defeated them. <laughs> but those are professionals. Yes. Uh, shooting. There were 21 shooting events at the 1920 Olympics, the most in modern Olympic history. The events were held at Beverloo Camp, which had been a military installation during the war. It's about 65 kilometers, or 40 miles, east of Antwerp. It was a rolling, barren ground with many hills and hollows. Due to the lack of trees, there was a great deal of wind, which kept scores low. While competition was going on, the Belgian Corps of Engineers were busy detonating German grenades in parts of the heath about four kilometers away. Like, to do tests or just to like, get rid of a bunch un- of grenades they had lying around? Undetonated yeah. ones, yeah. yeah. Just put a big pile in and then pull the pin on one and I don't. I, I think they're a little more controlled than that. Uh, to try to help compensate for some of these difficulties, pyramids were built for the athletes to shoot from. Pyramids? Yeah, they're okay. like stands and stuff. Uh, we're not going to go through each and every one of the results for all 21 events, not just because listing these things wouldn't be at all interesting, but also because there is no complete record of what happened. However, there are some interesting things that occurred. The five athletes from Brazil won three medals, one bronze, one silver, and one gold, becoming the first South American Olympians to medal in any event. Oh, good for them. Yeah, Afranio Antonio da Costa won silver in the 50-meter free pistol event using a pistol borrowed from the Americans, and Guillermo Perrin, Perens won gold in the 30-meter 30 30 military pistol. The Brazilian team won bronze in team 50-meter free pistol. Alfred Swan of Sweden won a silver medal in running deer shooting. Again, not real deer. You don't need to reassure me. I don't like deer. I say shoot them all. (laughs) I was not reassuring. I was stopping you from getting excited. Uh, (laughs) It didn't work. Yeah. uh, So Alfred Swan of Sweden won a silver medal in running deer shooting single shot individual. Also in running deer shooting double shot team event. And bronze in team clay pigeons. This was the third of four Olympics he medaled in, almost all in running deer shooting. In 1908, he won gold in the same event. In 1912, he won gold in the same event in both individual and team. We'll update you on his final total when we talk about him in 1924. Alfred Swan's father, Oscar Swan, was also an Olympic shooting gold medalist and also competed in the 1920 Olympics. Oscar Swan's first Olympics were in 1908 in London, where at the age of 60, he won gold in single-shot running deer, team single-shot running deer, and bronze in double-shot running deer. In 1924, at the age of 64 years, 258 days, he competed again and won a bronze in the 100-meter running deer double shots, and another gold in 100-meter team running deer single-shot. He is still the oldest Olympian to win a gold medal. And in 1920, he competed again at the age of 72 years and won a silver medal in double shot running deer, making him the oldest Olympian to ever win a medal in the modern Olympics. Possibly the ancient, too. We don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine too many 70-year-old Romans. They're Greeks. Mm. The Romans didn't do the Olympics. They had other sports. We'll fix that in post. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, the United States dominated, winning 23 medals or just over a third of the medals available, because we're the best at shooting. Uh, <laughs> 23. 23. Uh, 13 of them were gold. 
The team was full of noteworthy people, some for reasons more positive than others. Oh, yeah, we're getting into uh, where I decided not to get too detailed with one of these guys. Um, we're getting into the people he just said were notable for shooting guns. Yeah. Uh, well, he didn't actually use a gun. All right. Uh, <sighs> we're getting there. Uh, Carl Frederick, who won three gold medals, individual team pistol, team free pistol, and military team pistol, would go on to captain the 1948 U.S. Olympics shooting team and was president of the NRA, NRA from 1934 to 1935. Another was Mark Airy, who won gold in clay pigeon trap shooting and team clay pigeons. His career in shooting lasted from 1905 to 1934 and was an extremely colorful and popular shooter in America. Uh, Carl Osborne won six medals in Antwerp, four golds, one silver, one bronze, and had won four in Stockholm, one gold, two silver, one bronze, and would win one more in 1924, a silver. His career total of Olympic medals would stand for decades, matched only by Mark Spitz and Carl Lewis, until Michael Phelps shattered all three records with a career total of 28 medals. And here's, here's a, and finally James Snook, the Ohio veterinarian who earned a gold medal in the team military pistol event. Snook invented a veterinary medicine device, the Snook hook, which is still used in spaying animals today. Cute name. But that's not why we're talking about him. Mm. In 1929, he was arrested for murdering his live-in girlfriend, Ohio State medical student Theara K. Hicks. Snook was married at the time and had been posing as a man and wife with Hicks for three years. He claimed that Hicks asked him to divorce his wife and marry her, threatening to kill his wife and child if he refused. He used a hammer, and when that wasn't doing the job, he finished it with a pocket knife. I found, like, much more uh, detailed... Description of this, but I decided to uh, not go into full-on true crime <laughs> territory with this. Uh, a little bit outside the scope. Yikes. Yeah, it was rough. The jury didn't buy it. He was convicted and sentenced to death. He was executed on February 28th, 1930. The only American Olympian and only Olympic gold medalist who has ever been executed for a crime. Huh. We're number one. <laughs> well, she didn't say we had the most or the first Olympians executed. Just that that's the only one we've ever put. No, it was the produced. only American Olympian and gold medalist. Uh, maybe, maybe. Okay. I guess the question becomes how many I know other he, Olympians yeah, have I know been executed from other countries. Yeah, this I is know, not a question we have to answer. I, I think he might be the only gold medalist to ever be executed for a crime. I think. I know he's the only American gold right. medalist, but I I think he's the only gold medalist ever at this point. Somebody else could come along. Uh, so, soccer. Moving on, that was... <laughs> so, football? Uh, yeah, it's football, but I say soccer because I get confused. Uh, the 1920 Olympic soccer tournament was held in locations all over Belgium. The bulk of the matches were played in Antwerp at two different stadiums, but others were played at Ghent, approximately 40 miles southwest, and Saint-Gilles, approximately 30 miles south. And Bruges is about 94 miles west. Uh, this is now standard with Olympic trials and World Cup tournaments, but this was the first time this multi-city location style was used for a major soccer tournament. What was the motivation for it in the first case? Is it just space? And because they didn't... They, yeah, it was like they didn't have the facilities at any right. of these places because they had been, like, bombed to hell and back. It was not the strongest field of competitors at an Olympics. It was a mess for reasons we'll get into in a minute. 
Germany and Hungary weren't there, as we discussed in the last episode. Great Britain almost did not appear as well. In 1919, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales withdrew from FIFA and formed their own federation. The Federation of National Football Association, or FONFA? Uh, FIFA was still running the Olympic soccer tournaments, and because of this, the United States tried to get Great Britain kicked out of the tournament as they were no longer FIFA members. But it's not a FIFA tournament. Yeah, but FIFA's running it within the Olympics. Well, that seems suspect. Yeah, well, everything FIFA does is suspect. Uh, (laughs) Belgium and France supported the motion, but Great Britain was allowed in anyway. Of the 15 nations to enter the competition, in the end, only Switzerland withdrew before the competition itself due to financial difficulties. Uh, After all the fuss, the the only one of those nations to meddle in soccer was Belgium. The gold medal match was between Belgium and... (coughs) Bless you. uh, Czechoslovakia. The referee, John Lewis, was British and was chosen because he was believed to be neutral. The Czech team protested Lewis, however, and said that he had an anti-Czech bias after being the victim of violence at a match in Prague and now wanted revenge. On I mean, to- who among us? On top of that, the 40,000 spectators... Has were- not wanted revenge? <laughs> yeah, against Prague. Uh, on top of that, the 40,000 spectators were very much in favor of Belgium. Which is the extra on page 187 we're talking about. Oh, yes. Uh, Both by the side of the stands and by the side of the terraces, waves of people penetrated the stadium, overrunning all obstacles. The Olympic trench had grown into an enormous gate via which thousands poured in. A cordon of soldiers was thrown round the sidelines in an attempt to at least keep the crowd off the playing field. All around the stadium... Fans were hanging like bunches of grapes from the colonnades and from the trees. So, while the official reason for the Belgian troops lining the field was to keep the fans from invading, the Czechs felt it was an intimidation tactic. Which way were they pointing their guns? That's the real question. <laughs> Belgium took an early lead, scoring a goal at the 6-minute mark and again at the 30-minute mark. The Czechs were becoming increasingly upset over Lewis's officiating, and when a foul was called against them at the 39-minute mark, they walked off the field and refused to return. So Belgium won the tournament. The Czechs protested, the text of which we have, and that's the excerpt on page 188, I think okay. Sarah has that, yeah. Uh, we were granted an English linesman, which was a contradiction against the published rules, in which it was noted that each participating nation had the right to two linesmen. This rules violation was an important prejudice against us because the English linesman was not impartial, and that is why we demand the annulment of the match. Most of the decisions by the referee, M. Lewis, were incorrect, and it was evident that he was prejudiced against our team. Also, both of the goals were marked by Belgians only, but after false decisions of the judge, and we demand a rigorous inquiry on this point. In the course of the match, the Belgian soldiers were introduced as one, and they encircled the field, and their provocative and menacing conduct prevented our team from being able to play a peaceful and regulated game. After the regrettable incident at the end of the match, a wild mob of soldiers destroyed our flag at the end in a manner that we were unable to continue to participate until a satisfactory apology for the destruction of our flag was made to the entire team. Did they shoot the flag? Wait, what happened there at the end? They, like, grabbed the flag and ran or something? Like, wasn't it? No, it (laughs) it doesn't say. Okay, I think... It might say in the non-highlighted part. I think they stole a flag. Or something. The silver and bronze medals were awarded according to the Bergvall system, which we've talked about in other times where it was all the runners-up competing for these different things. Uh, Czechoslovakia, having been disqualified, was not allowed to participate because they walked off the field. Uh, Many of the French players went home before they were supposed to compete in the other tournaments, and so they had to withdraw. 
So the Netherlands ended up playing Spain. Spain won three to one and got the silver medal. The Netherlands ended up with bronze. This is a baffling time where athletes just peace out before they can get their shots at medals. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm done. I'm leaving. <laughs> All right. Diving. Okay, this is insane. When I was reading this, I was like, holy crap. It's just fancy falling. No, but it's the... The, the insane thing is the facilities. The diving... Was, was there water? Please yeah, don't. There was water. Uh, there was... It was there. The diving of the 1920s was probably the most extreme event and the most extreme diving event in modern Olympic history. The outdoor pool that was used for diving was actually part of a moat. Boardwalks had been built around it to mark the ends of the pool, and on those bleachers with enough had enough and those bleachers had enough seating for 10,000 spectators. A platform was constructed in the middle of this that had the various diving boards on it. Despite being held from the 22nd through the 29th of August, the weather was cloudy and rainy. One of the divers described the water as black, dark, dark, black. And she also noted that the water was the coldest any of the competitors had ever encountered. Because of the dark water and cloudy weather and the cold temperature of everything, the divers would often get disoriented when they hit the water and have trouble finding their way back up, which only prolonged that part of the misery. And afterward, there was no hot there were no hot showers to help them get their body temperature back up. They were each outfitted with towels, bathrobes, woolen stockings, socks, and ear mufflers in an attempt to deal with the cold. Ear mufflers don't help after your ears are under cold water. <laughs> Just pro tip. Uh, 14 nations were represented by 53 athletes. 35 men and 18 women competed. Some new flags around this event were Brazil and Japan. Two unlucky guys who were probably wishing they had waited until sometime when the weather was at least a little better to make their Olympic debut. There were nine medals up for grabs in the men's competition. America won five and Sweden won four. There were six in the women's competition and America won the medal race again with three in Denmark, Great Britain, and Sweden all got one each. Of the three men's events, Sweden swept one and the U.S. swept another and they split the third. Plain high diving was the Swedes' game. They swept the first four places. Silver medalist Nils Skoglund was only 14 years and 11 days old and to this day is the youngest male Olympic medalist in modern history. There are a few female medalists younger than him. The Americans swept fancy springboard diving. In this event, the divers had to perform compulsory and optional dives from both the one and three meter springboards. They also had to perform two more dives drawn by lot. These dives were surprise dives disclosed to the competitors just before the meet started. So they had no time to practice them. In total, there were six compulsory dives, four voluntary dives, and two drawn dives. They split the fancy high diving with American Clarence Bud Pinkston winning gold, Eric Adlers of Sweden winning silver, and Hal Priest of the U.S. winning bronze. Priest died in 2001 at the age of 103 and traveled to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. We'll give him a mention then because he did something while he was there that it was worth noting. But it wasn't winning a gold medal, because we would have heard about it yeah, uh, earlier when we had the oldest Olympian. Uh, American women swept the fancy springboard diving because they were the only ones who entered. There were four of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Four of them finishing in order, gold through fourth, Aileen Riggin, Helen Wainwright, Thelma Payne, and Aileen Allen. They competed under the same rules as the men, with the six compulsory dives, four voluntary dives, and two dives drawn by lot. 
Women's plane high diving was the only event in which somebody other than an American or a Swede medaled. Stephanie Clausen of Denmark won gold, Eileen Armstrong of Great Britain silver, and Eva Allewire of Sweden won bronze. And we had clarified the rules by this time in terms of splashing upon entry, yeah, not yeah. good or good. Yeah. I, that was only a controversy for one. Olympic. Yeah, one of them right. in which like nobody told the Germans that you had to actually enter nicely. So I don't know, they were it's belly flopping. It's fancy falling, not <laughs> fancy water entering. <laughs> Swimming was held in a, quote, hastily constructed pool in Antwerp. The yeah. water here wasn't much better than at the diving pool. It was probably just moat water they pumped in. Yeah, I guess. It was also described as very dark and very cold. <laughs> There were ten events total, three for men and or seven for men and three for the women. Bless you. Ninety-two men and twenty-four women from nineteen nations competed in these events. One American woman, Ethelda Liebtre, won gold medals in all three women's events from the one hundred meter freestyle, the three hundred meter freestyle, and the four by one hundred meter freestyle relay. She also set world records in each event by two and a half seconds on the 100 meter and just under 10 seconds on the 300 meter. I don't know what the previous world record was for the relay, if there was one, but the Americans, American team's time was 29.2 seconds better than silver medal winners Great Britain. It's almost 30 seconds faster than the silver medalists. And you said that was how many meters? Um, that was a relay, so it was like 400 meters total. Okay. That's that's a fair amount of distance, but yeah, not the, so much that you'd think there's 30 seconds of slack to set a new record with. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's like at least a lap that they were yeah. like ahead. Uh, Bleep Trey led an extremely strong women's American women's team. With three events, there were nine medals available to win. In addition to her three golds, the team also won two silver and two bronze, bringing the women's medal total to seven out of the nine available. Uh, right? In addition, three, two... One plus two, plus two plus one. Okay, then I have Sweden won the other medal, bronze in the relay. Oh, oh, and then silver medalist was Great Britain, that team. Yeah, the only reason they didn't win more was because it was a team event and they couldn't win more than one. All right. Uh, the men's field was a little stronger, and so there were more events. Seven, and there were more events. Seven in total, so 21 medals up for grabs. The Americans won nine of them. Sweden came in second in the medal race with four, and the rest of the countries that medaled all managed one or two. Some of the American dominance, at least in the men's competition, can be attributed to the absence of the German team, who had some of the strongest swimmers in the world at that time. Norman Ross won three gold medals. It was his first and only Olympics, though he had a successful swimming career in addition to his impressive showing at the 1920 Olympics. Later, he became a radio personality in Chicago, known as Uncle Normie, and his son, Norman Ross Jr., followed suit. So if you're from Chicago, that might be why that name is ringing a bell. Along with Ross, there were two Hawaiians. Warren Paua Kialoa made his Olympic debut, winning gold in the 100-meter breaststroke and setting a new world record in the process, and Duke Kahana Moku returned again to again win gold in the 100-meter freestyle, and between the three of them, along with Perry McGillivray, the American team won the gold in the 4x200-meter freestyle relay pretty easily. They did it in world record time, a full 21 seconds ahead of the Australian silver medal team, who were no slouches as the bronze medal British team came in a full 12.2 seconds after them. Are we sure they didn't just build this pool too short, and that's why everyone's getting like 30-second improvements on records? It's not the records. That was they were 30 seconds ahead of the the silver medalists. Oh, yeah. 
Well, yeah, there's no excuse for that, then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, tennis. No Americans competed in tennis in the 1920 Olympics. As Next. Were, as they were happening at the same time as the U.S. Championship. Uh, the 75 athletes from 14 nations who did compete had to deal with some less than ideal conditions. Factories pouring steaming water into the tennis courts as well? Uh, not quite, but close. The courts were brand new. Red clay made from crushed brick and were in poor condition. They Hold were... on. Brand new and poor condition? <laughs> yes. They didn't have the thing. They That's they... true. They had to scramble to put these together yeah, in like eight were... months. It was like crushed brick. It was like, oh, well, this building got destroyed. We're just going to break tennis court. all of the brick into a rectangle <laughs> yeah. and you just play on it. Yeah. They were very close to the Beershot Stadium where the track and field competition was happening. And cheers from the crowd there often interrupted the matches. As in other Olympics, women were permitted to compete in singles and mixed doubles. They also, for the first time, had women's doubles. The men had singles and doubles and mixed doubles, so for the first time, there was an equal number of events for both women and men. Great Britain won the medal race in tennis, earning six of the 15 medals possible. France got four, South Africa and Japan both got two, and Czechoslovakia got one. Ichiya Kumagai was the first Japanese athlete to win a medal at the Olympics when he won silver in men's singles, and then repeated it when he and his silver, Seichiro Kashio, uh, Kashio won silver in the men's doubles. Japan had been expanding its participation in international sporting events following their Olympic debut in Stockholm, where the guy got lost in the, in the marathon and never told anyone. Um, <laughs> to the great embarrassment of... Was that guy still MIA at this point? He, had he yeah, had... I mean, his family knew where he was. Okay. That was a thing. Was, like, nobody ever reported him missing because he just went home. Later, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got home. So, but it was like... Somebody was looking at the records. He's still in that marathon from the previous Olympics. <laughs> yeah, like, he still is. still like, clocking yeah, up. Yeah, he never, he never crossed the finish line. So technically, he's still... He did, like... Uh, in the 60s, in the I 60s. think. Yeah, okay. yeah. When somebody actually looked at the records, they're like, this guy started the race and never finished it. What happened to him? And it was like, oh, good. He, he survived. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, to the great embarrassment of the government it turns out that the japanese amateur athletic association had underestimated just how much it would cost to get the two tennis players home oh no local representatives of the mitsubishi and mitsui zaibatsu were able to get the fifteen thousand dollars together to send the olympians home and ever since then the government has subsidized the travel costs of japanese olympic athletes yeah that's like if one of our athletes got stuck somewhere and Amazon or Facebook had yeah. to fly them back. Yeah. <laughs> and you could tell the book I used for my main reference for this episode was written before Serena Williams really made her presence known. The book was published in 2003. Uh, Williams went pro in 95, but didn't start winning titles until 99, really starting to hit her stride in 2002. So this book was written right before that. Uh, because they describe, they describe Suzanne Lenglen of France as quote, considered by some as the greatest female player of all time. But to give Langlin her due, she was a phenomenal athlete as well. Her presence at the Olympics is what improved the quality of women's competition over the men's competition, which suffered from the Americans being absent, as well as top Australian Gerald Patterson withdrawing due to business conflicts. Langlin uh, is just a really interesting person. She was, had a sickly childhood and lifelong battle with chronic asthma. Her parents were not aristocrats. Her father owned a carriage company and encouraged her to try playing tennis when she was 10 to help improve her overall health. She was winning championships by the time she was 14. 
So it worked. Yeah. Good dad. When she turned 15, she won World Hard Court Championship, still the youngest champion of any major tennis championship ever. Langland's, Langland's amateur career lasted from 1914 to 1926, during which time she won 31 championship titles before going pro. She was the first female tennis player to go pro. Her first pro tour was in the U.S. She was paid $50,000 to pay, play a series of matches against American Mary Kay Brown. Their face-off was the first time women were the headline event of a tour. But she, one of them was pro and one not? I guess. Uh, she, no. was, she was known... She does uh, try uh, to help her fellow athletes, so, like, she's not one of those, like, only... I'm not saying it's her fault no, no, at all. That no, is not, not my intention. But there. she, like, it's, actually, like, talks... We have yeah, some quotes from her. Yeah. Uh, she was known for her flamboyant and trendsetting style and was the first female tennis celebrity and one of the first female international sports stars. The French press referred to her as La Divine, or the goddess. By the time she retired, she had won 241 titles in all. At one point, her career had a 181-match winning streak, and her overall career record was 341 wins, 7 losses, or a 98% match record. This was all with a five-year gap in competition not long after she started due to World War I. Her decision to go pro was extremely controversial at the time, and the All England Club at Wimbledon revoked her honorary membership because of it. But her reasons to do so were very much based on the economic realities of her working-class background and recognizing her own worth as an athlete. She described her decision as, quote, an escape from bondage and slavery and said in the tour program, quote, in the 12 years I have been champion, I have earned literally millions of francs for tennis, and I paid thousands of francs in entrance fees to be allowed to do so. I have worked as hard at my career as any man or woman has worked in any career, and in my whole lifetime, I have not earned $5,000, not one cent of that by my specialty, my life study, tennis. I'm 27 and not wealthy. Should I embark on any other career and leave the one for which I have what people call genius, or should I smile at the prospect of actual poverty and continue to earn a fortune for whom? As for the amateur tennis system, Langland said, under these absurd and antiquated amateur rulings, only a wealthy person can compete. And the fact of the matter is that only wealthy people do compete. Is that fair? Does it advance the sport? Does it make tennis more popular? Or does it tend to suppress and hinder the an enormous amount of tennis talent lying dormant in the bodies of young men and women whose names are not in the social register? Yeah, it's that, it's that last one. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a rhetorical question? Yeah. No, she's, she knows. Yeah. Uh, Langland retired from professional competition in 1927 to open a tennis school, which she did mm. using her lover, John Tiller's, John Tiller's money. She wrote several books about tennis during this time, as well as run her very successful and well-respected tennis school until her death in 1938 from leukemia. At the 1920 Olympics, Lundgren won three medals, gold in women's singles, gold in mixed doubles, and bronze in women's doubles. So, tug of war. This was the last time there would be a tug of war event at the Olympics. No! And it was a complete mess. Yes! Usually, Going out with a bang. Yeah. Please tell me the rope was on fire somehow at some point. <laughs> Usually the notes on this fill like half a page in one of these Malin books. This one is a full six pages, a little over four of which are first-hand report of the event. One of the few complete reports of an Olympic event from the 1920 Olympics, although most of it is talking about the opening ceremonies. So the big problem was not the gold medal. Everybody agreed that Great Britain won that. There was no controversy there. 
The controversy was over the silver medal, which was reported to have been awarded to both the Americans and the Dutch. It was in the early 60s that this was finally cleared up. How did they how did they eyeball this one wrong? There's no math involved in picking the tug of war winner. The reason for this problem, the reason this problem even happened was because of how incomplete the IOC report from the 1920 Olympics was due to budget shortfalls. The official report listed the winners as Great Britain, the Netherlands, and Belgium winning gold, silver, and bronze, but also included this description from page 187, which I think Sarah has. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. I've uh, 287, yeah. Sorry. Oh, the... This brief note here is the source of controversy? Yes. The, quote, the Dutch team should have pulled against the American team for second place, but because the Dutch team had already returned home, the second place team, or the second place was awarded to the United States? Yes. I mean, that's unfortunate for them, but it seems fairly straightforward. However, Mellon's co-author for the 1920 book, Anthony Vizkirk, found out in the early 60s that some of the Dutch team members were still alive, when they were researching the book, he went to interview them, saw and photographed the silver medals and diplomas, because it was on the records that the Americans had won the silver medal. Well, it was on the record that the Dutch team had, like, pieced out, which was somewhat common in this yeah. event, or in this Olympics in general, as we've yeah. heard. So, yeah. And they were like, no, we've got pictures, we were there. But yeah, so it was like, okay... So it says the official report listed the Netherlands as winning the silver, but for some reason it was also reported that the Americans had the silver. So then this guy who was in the 60s, he's researching this, and mm-hmm. there's like a big discrepancy, Anthony Fishkirk. And so he went to some of these guys who had competed in this and were still alive to interview them. And Question one, did you leave the Olympics early? Yeah, and... Uh, he went to interview them, saw and photographed the silver medals and diplomas that had been presented to the team, which they still had. Okay. And uh, with this evidence, he was able to convince the IOC to correct the record in 1968. Although the team members he had spoken to were unimpressed with his clerical achievement, as they had always known they had won the medal. They had, I mean, presumably, <laughs> the Americans did not have silver medals. Yeah, and I don't think the Americans knew that they supposedly had won. Oh, <laughs> so they were... Okay. It was on the records. That this but no one read that? No one went back? I guess yeah, you know, who's going to go look it up? Because yeah. everyone saw the medals go to Team A. Yeah, right. yeah. The Dutch knew they had the medals. They weren't complaining about anything. They didn't yeah. know, like, somewhere it had been written down that the Americans actually won the medals that they had. So anyway. Well, at least that one was an easy one to correct. Yes. Uh, and nobody was impressed with this, but I'm sure Anthony Bedgekirk felt very good about it. Uh, water polo. For the first 20 years of the 20th century, Great Britain was an indomitable force in water polo. They won the gold medal in 1900, 1908, 1912, and 1920. They did not participate in water polo in the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, which was probably for the best because that was where, like, a full third of the people who had competed in that ended up dying of typhoid within a year because of that. Don't swim in the poison lake. Yeah, this was the end of that particular Olympic dynasty, as they have not meddled since. Mm. This do remar- we still do water polo? We do. Mm. Uh, this remarkable achievement was due in part to some repeat team members who had long careers. Charles Bugby finished his career with gold medals from 1912 and 1920. Charles Smith and Paul Radmilovich both retired with three gold medals from 1908, 1912, and 1920. They would all go on to compete in future Olympics, but would not medal in them. Radmilovich also had a fourth gold medal from 1908, as he was part of the men's 4x200-meter freestyle relay. Belgium had very high hopes for their hometown team, but had to settle for silver, and Sweden won bronze. 
No, weightlifting. Weightlifting did not boast a very strong field in 1920. The premier weightlifters in the world at that time were all German and Hungarian, and they were not invited. The events were held in Beerschot Stadium immediately after the track and field events, closer to how they did it in the early Olympics when weightlifting was part of the track and field, although also sometimes gymnastics. The French and Swedish teams brought their own barbells, preferring to use their own equipment. The French liked barbells without discs, while the Swedes liked barbells with discs. In the end, it didn't matter what they preferred. The officials told them they had to use the same equipment as everybody else. <laughs> I, I'm kind of on the official side yeah, here. Yeah, like, you standardize that shit. Yeah, you can't bring your you, own. You're going to, like, deflate the barbells or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, shots fired at you patriots. Uh, 53 competitors from 14 nations participated in five events. Some new nations participating included Czechoslovakia, Egypt, Estonia, and Luxembourg. Of these... Luxembourg and Estonia did the best. Luxembourg winning a silver, and Estonia winning a gold and a silver. France and Belgium tied for the medal race, both winning three. France, France edged out Belgium in which medals? Belgium won one of each, while France won two golds and a bronze. The events were broken down by weight class, featherweight, lightweight, middleweight, and uh, heavyweight. Or middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight. A lot of the medalists only medaled in these Olympics due to the Germans and Hungarians coming back in 1924. <laughs> but one story of a hometown hero has a sadder reason. Uh, Belgium's gold medalist, featherweight Francois-Franz de Hayes, was a working-class hero. He was a teenager during the war and had fled with his parents to the Netherlands to escape the German occupation. When he was 17, he started training under Laurent Gerstmans, a famous Belgian wrestler who was also from Antwerp. In 1919, he returned to Antwerp and joined the newly founded Gerstmans Worstel Club and soon uh, beat all three Belgian featherweight records. He beat silver medalist Estonian uh, silver medalist Estonia's Alfred Schmidt by 10 points in 1920 to win the gold medal. He was preparing to compete in 1924 when he died of the flu in May of 1923. He was 28 years old. So, uh, flu is a serious like people don't remember that the flu actually killed will a lot. Kill of, you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wrestling was similar to weightlifting in that almost all of the elite athletes in the do, sport do, do, do. at the time were German or Hungarian. Nonetheless, they held five events in two styles of wrestling: Greco-Roman and catches catch can. Is that a new one? It we was, talked about it before. It was it, Greco-Roman and freestyle. Before. No, it was Catch-as-Catch-Can, which is basically freestyle. Okay. Uh, in the absence of the Germans and Hungarians, the medals went mostly to Scandinavians and Americans. Finland won the medal race with 12 total. Sweden and the United States both got six each, and the other nations that medaled got one or two total. The Greco-Roman matches were originally two rounds of 10 minutes each, and one competitor had to win by a fall in the first two rounds. If neither achieved that, another 20 minutes were contested, and then a decision was made. It was still a tie. They'd add, an extra they'd add extra rounds of 10 minutes each until somebody won. So we can still go 18 hours. Yes. Good. I don't want to lose that. Yeah. Uh, uh, what was after the actual the time? Was it like 12 hours or 16 or I don't know. After the first day, this was proven to be unworkable. Mm. <laughs> I feel like I just foreshadowed myself in the foot. Yes. So the matches were changed to one round of 10 minutes, win by fall necessary, and one 15-minute overtime. That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, I've learned my lesson. As catch in, in catches catch can, the matches were one 10-minute round each, except for the final matches, which were best of three bouts of one 10-minute round each. 
As mentioned earlier, most of the best wrestlers in the world at the time were not permitted to compete in the 1920 Olympics. Some standouts included Carl Westergren of Sweden. He won the gold in the Greco-Roman middleweights. This was his first Olympic performance and first Olympic gold, but it would not be his last. Swedish wrestler Claes Johansson uh, defended his 1912 gold medal in Greco-Roman light heavyweights. He returned in 1924, but did not medal that time, as this was really the end of his career. In the Greco-Roman heavyweights, Adolf Lindfors of Finland won gold by winning all five matches with pins, a rare feat. In Catches Catch Can, the Americans did better. They won all six of their medals in the discipline. There weren't there aren't a lot, a whole lot of athletes of note in these. Most of them, this was their only time meddling. A lot of it was their only time appearing at all. The main noteworthy athlete in Catches Catch Can was Aino Laino of Sweden or Finland, who won gold in Catches Catch Can middleweight, defeating fellow Finn. Oh God, there's so many umlauts. Uh, Werner Pen Pentala in his only Olympic appearance. Laino would continue to compete in the Olympics until 1932. Who would also only compete internationally at the Olympics, not participating in anything else. So no world championships, nothing like that. No, sorry. Like, he's competed in wrestling before. Like, locally. Okay, yes. It wasn't like he goes, I'm going to try this out of nowhere, and he may be... It seems unlikely. Okay. So we have yachting, and then we get into the... The big show. All right. Yachting. For some reason, there was a massive number of yachting events at the 1920 Olympics. More events than... We had a moat. Yeah. More events (laughs) than there were competitors to participate. (sighs) In fact, as a number of them... In fact... In fact, as a number of them weren't held because nobody entered, and one of them only one team entered. So of the 16 events planned, only 13 actually happened. (sighs) There were no entrants in the 9-meter... 1907 rating class and the 8.5 meter 1919 rating class. Oh, right. You can't just sign up for the empty slots because you need to have brought a yacht of the correct type. And a crew. Well, eh. <laughs> At this point, you really don't need the crew. You just let the, lot, let the yacht loose in the boat and it gets to the finish line eventually and you'll win. Uh, in the 18-foot dinghy event, there was only one boat, a British ship. It's unknown if they were awarded a gold medal for showing up. They, that's the rules. <laughs> they get all three of the medals, right? Uh, six nations participated in the 13 events. Only one of them had more than three boats participating. Uh, oh, one of the events. Only one of the events had more than three boats participating. I was, I misread. Everybody gets a medal in most of these. Yes, the six meter 1907 <laughs> class. Uh, the 18 foot dinghy was not the only one with only one boat. Six more had only one boat. Um... I wrote this confusingly. Uh, okay, yeah, this is the thing. It's because the eight, the, the difference is the 18-foot dinghy. Uh, we don't know if that British ship was awarded a, a medal. But in this other six events that only had one boat, they were all awarded a medal. I think we could hopefully infer that the dinghy was awarded its medal. Yeah, I mean, but we just don't have records of it. Uh, Norway won five of the medals and Sweden won gold in the 30 meter class. So Norway just sent a bunch of boats and they're like, well, I guess we win. Uh, there are five events that had two boats, the 12 foot dinghy, six meter 1919 class, 6.5 meter 1919 class and seven meter 1907 class and the 40 meter class. So these were the ones that had two. The Netherlands swept, uh, 12 foot dinghy and Sweden swept the 40 meter class. 
they were the only ones competing in those events. <laughs> Norway won gold and Belgium silver in the 6 meter 1919, Netherlands gold and France silver in the 6.5 meter 1919, and Great Britain won gold and Norway silver in the 7 meter 1907. Two events had three or more competitors, three in the 8 meter 1919. Uh, Norway won gold and silver and Belgium won bronze. In the 6 meter 1907, there were four whole boats. Oh, shit, someone's not getting a medal. <laughs> They're going to feel so sad. Uh, Belgium won gold, Norway silver and bronze, and Belgium came in fourth. Oh, they're fine then. Yeah. Norway entered a lot of ships, and a lot of them raced unopposed, which made them the winners of the yachting medal race by a long shot, with 11 overall, 7 of them gold. One thing worth mentioning here is that this was officially a co-ed competition, as the gold medal crew for Great Britain, sailing the Ancora in the 7 meter 1907 rating event, included Dorothy Wright. She was the only woman to participate in yachting in 1920. Hmm. I think we had more women participating in 1900. Well, you almost had more women in, in 1900 than you had people in total in yeah. 1944. <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Track and field. As always in the Summer Olympics, the big show was track and field. It was especially anticipated at this time as there had been no competitions in Europe, uh, for Europe, during the war. So even though the track was undersized at... 389.8 meters and the whole field wet and soft throughout the competition mm. leading to less than impressive times spirits were still fairly high and competition exciting it was outshined only by stockholm in, in terms of the quality of the competition even with the austere conditions the olympics were in the process of really establishing themselves as the premier sporting event that they are today for some reason none of the times of the runner-ups were published at the time possibly due to them never being recorded we're not gonna look. We're not gonna do any of the math, and that includes writing down Second most place. of the times. What was recorded? We was eyeballed the, it. What was recorded was the time of the first place winner, and then the approximate distance each runner-up was behind the winner. Oh, this system again. Yeah. Later sources then based estimates on time from that. It's all very inexact. Lots of eyeballing. Yeah. Also, because you can change your speed after the first guy gets across to try yeah. and like pull ahead of the third, whatever. It's a bad system. It is. Uh, we've improved since then. We now have like computers to time things. 509 athletes from 25 nations competed, all men, because women weren't allowed to do it yet. All survived and none ran off into the woods to disappear for 60 years and no undisputed legends were disqualified for being a professional in a sport that wasn't even an Olympic event. So Antwerp did have that going for it. So we're better than at least three previous Olympics. And <laughs> yes. uh, nobody took strychnine. <laughs> no, well, no that, that we know of. No, no wild dogs, which makes it better than at least two Olympics. Oh, right. <laughs> the dogs were in two of them. <laughs> yeah. Give <laughs> uh, some strychnine to those dogs. Let them just uh, run. <laughs> No, don't, people actually do that. Don't joke. Oh, oh, that's terrible. It is. It's awful. All right. Anyway, um, events took place from August 15th to 23rd, so starting the day after the opening ceremonies. The games didn't officially close until September 12th. Running and hurdling. It, Wait, if no one died and no one ran off to flee the country and there were no wild dogs, what are we going to fill the time with talking about? Uh, there was a very antisocial, uh, introverted sprinter in the 200 meters that we have a fun quote about the oh, okay. us when we get there <laughs> uh running and hurdling the americans were still very well represented in track and field particularly the sprinting and hurdling events oh and you have something about race walking i know <laughs> i i refuse yeah. that's not how dare you 
This is going to be this episode's horse jumping. Riding is not a sport. Wait, let me get there. Okay. Uh, Americans were still very well represented in track and field, particularly the sprinting and hurdling events. However, they did not have the complete dominance they had displayed in other games. In fact, the only event they swept was the 400-meter hurdles. 400-meter hurdles was an event that was rarely contested. Nobody really had any expectation how it would go. And it went to the three top American hurdlers in the same order in which they had finished at the Olympic trials earlier in the year, with Frank Loomis winning gold, John Norton silver, and August Desch bronze. Loomis also broke the Olympic record and the world record in this race, coming in at 54.0 seconds. The world record had been set by silver medalist John Norton at the Western Olympic trials the previous June. There was a bit of a problem with the 100-meter dash, which spoiled the potential American sweep of that event. Yeah, it is. okay. Lauren Murchison of the U.S., was the only one to challenge fellow American and favorite Charlie Paddock through the various heats and trials. At the final, the starter requested that Murchison pull his hands back behind the line. Murchison began to stand up, thinking that they would all be taken through the commands again, but instead, the starting pistol fired, and Murchison was left trying to catch up the entire 10-second race. He came in last, despite his famous, quote, jump finish. Charlie Paddock won gold, Morris Kirksey of the U.S. Silver, and Guyana-born British sprinter Harry Edward won bronze. Paddock was also the favorite in the 200 meter. Murchison also ran that race, but it was not his strongest event, and he came in fourth. Harry Edward of Great Britain took bronze again, and Paddock took silver this time, losing the gold to little-known introvert icon Alan Woodring. And Sarah's going to read to us about Alan. Alan, if he could avoid it, never spoke. He lived a very unsportsmanlike life, and that was and was one of the most studious and conscientious athletes. Actually, he arrived in Antwerp by accident. He was unable to win a place in the official selection contests and was included on the list only in the last minute. He trained with great diligence, so much so that his shoes fell apart, which was a major disaster. (laughs) Woodring was unable to obtain any track shoes. Finally, one of the other athletes loaned him his own ones, but only for the duration of the race. (laughs) Here are some shoes. I want these back. (laughs) Answer me, Dan. (laughs) No Americans meddled in the 400 meter. American Ted Meredith held the world record at the time, but failed to survive the semifinals. Frank Shea, who won the American Olympic trials, came in fourth. Beating out Shea was Nils Engdahl of Sweden, who won bronze, Guy Butler of Great Britain winning silver, and Bevel Rudd of South Africa winning gold. And we know some things about Bevel Rudd, so I'm going to read you some stuff from his Wikipedia entry. I think this is the first time we have, like, any information about an athlete from South Africa other than he won a medal in a name. I don't know if you remember, like, for the earlier episodes. Is that every when t- the team, like, disappeared or something? No, it's just, we know nothing about these guys. Like, there's, like, no records of a lot of these South African athletes for some reason. But Bevel Rudd was the grandson of Charles Rudd, who founded the De Beers Diamond Company. Oh, great. <laughs> he was an excellent student and student-athlete who attended Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. He served in World War One and was awarded a military cross for bravery. We'll be hearing Rudd's name a few more times in this episode as he earned a few more medals. After graduating university, he got a job as an editor for the Daily Telegraph, which he held until 1948 when he returned to South Africa and died at the age of 53. As far as I I know, he's not related to Paul. (laughs) I was going to make a joke about Paul Rudd, but you beat me to it. Touche. Okay, American Ted Meredith also held the world record for the 800 meters, but didn't even compete in this event at the 1920 Olympics. Instead, 1920 American champion Earl Eby uh, represented the U.S. The last semifinals and finals for this event were held 30 minutes apart. 
which is crazy because it's a rough, rough distance. <laughs> like, uh, Albert Hill of Great Britain won gold, Arl E.B. Silver and Bevel Rudd bronze. Albert Hill was not done, though. He also won gold in the 1500 meter. Uh, Philip Noel Baker of Great Britain won silver in the event. And Lawrence Shields of the U.S. managed to get the bronze. We'll be talking about Noel Baker more in the wrap-up as he went on to bigger and better things and deserves special mention. Finnish athlete Hannes Kolomainen's world and Olympic record in the 1500 meters still stood from 1912. It would not be broken this year. Fellow Finn Pavo Nurmi would win silver. Eric Beckman of Sweden won bronze, and Joseph Guillemo of France won gold. Guillemo also merits a special mention. This guy was nuts. Or, not the story's nuts. Uh, <laughs> he was born in 1899 and was a veteran of World War One. His athletic career had begun when he was serving, when he won the National Cross Country championship for the french military before returning to the front and serving until armistice day which took place a month before he had turned 19 during the war he suffered a collapsed lung due to exposure to mustard gas along with that he also had dextrocardia where one's heart is on the right hand side instead of the left he was told after the mustard gas incident that he would never run again but he did pretty soon after that and won the gold in the 5000 meter race is dextrocardio generally an impediment to athleticism, or I don't think I don't think so. I think it's more uh, an issue if you are fighting. <laughs> well, it's certainly an issue if you need surgery, yeah, which yeah. you might in the army, but yeah, like when his lung collapsed. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I don't think it. it uh, I don't think so. But uh, don't quote me on that because mm. I didn't look it up. Well, it's not like we're pushing this in line or anything. So. Yeah, uh, Guillermo also won silver in the ten thousand meter race. The world record holder was Jean Boon, Boon, who had competed in the nineteen oh eight and nineteen twelve Olympics. Boon, however, had also served. Oh, the world record holder was him. Okay, had also served in World War One and died in nineteen fourteen. His record was not broken this time. Pavo Nurmi of Finland won the gold, but he might have been. It might be more accurate to say Guillermo lost it. He had some things working against him. King Albert had requested that the final for the 1,000-meter race be held three hours earlier than originally planned. Guillermo had eaten a large lunch and then found out that the schedule about the schedule change. In addition to that, Guillermo's shoes had been stolen, and he had to borrow a pair that were two sizes too big. Uh, despite the inappropriate footwear and stomach cramps, he still managed to threaten Parvey for the win and finished just about 1.4 seconds behind him. Coming in third was James Wilson of Great Britain. Yeah, so running is terrible, <laughs> and running with food in your stomach is four to five times more terrible, I think, proportionally. Yeah. It's not good. I have not tried it with, like, bigger shoes. That seems... Well, it'd be hard for me to do that because yeah. I have size 13 feet. But, like, yeah. <laughs> it certainly doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. Um, Gamer would go on to win a few championship titles in various events but would not return to the Olympics. In 1924, he had a falling out with the French Athletics Union and did not compete. He smoked a pack a day until he died in Paris at the age of 75. <laughs> Is that heavy for a smoker? I don't feel like it is. For a runner, it's very heavy. Uh, for uh, right? a smoker who had a collapsed lung due to exposure to right. mustard gas, that is a lot. Kolomainen mm. <laughs> was present at these Olympics, and while he was not quite as dominant in the other events as he was in 1912, he did manage to win a big one, the marathon. The marathon itself went off without too many hitches, despite the fact that it was the longest in Olympic history at 
42.75 kilometers, or about 26.56 miles. We haven't standardized this yet? Uh, no. A big mm. part of why this went so well, despite the extra distance, was that the weather was cool and damp. Which is, like, astonishing. Cool weather, no dogs. <laughs> yeah, no dogs. Uh, no strychnine. The chorus began and ended at Beershot Stadium, and I guess went all around Antwerp in between, but a curse research didn't specify where. South Africa's Christian Gitschem had been training on the course for weeks, and it seemed to pay off at first. He took the lead by three kilometers, and by the 20-kilometer mark, he was still in the lead pack, along with August Bruce of Belgium, Ettore Blasi of Italy, Yuri Lossman of Estonia, and Hannes Kolmenen of Finland, and fellow Finnish marathoner Juho Tumikoski, not far behind. By the midpoint, Kolomainen took the lead along with Gitchum, and by the 37-kilometer mark, Gitchum had to withdraw due to a leg injury. Kolomainen then began to pull away, putting in a remarkable time, even with the extended length. Estonian Yuri Lossman then really put on the gas and finished only 13 seconds behind Kolomainen. Lossman did not take the loss well, and later said it was the fault of his teammates. Because if any of the other Estonian Olympians had been there to support him, instead of going on an all-day excursion, he would have won. Just, he wanted, like, moral support? Yeah, from his teammates who just went on a sightseeing tour day trip instead of hanging around for his race. Uh, Valerio... Uh, that's real questionable. <laughs> Valerio Ari of Italy came out of nowhere to win the bronze and was so delighted by his own performance that he crossed the finish line with three cartwheels. Yes. Okay, <laughs> that is awesome. It's like, I... Not... I want to see more marathoners cartwheel who, over the yeah, finish like, line. Who has enough energy at the end of a marathon to... I mean... Finish a marathon for one, but I guess at that point maybe you can. Yeah. Out some, I don't know. That's great. Australian hurdler Wilfred Kent Hughes, another World War One veteran, was there to witness the end of the marathon and was less than impressed by what was expected of Colomainen after he crossed the finish line, which is the excerpt on page sixty-one. I think Sarah, you have that. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yes, Kent Hughes. Uh, the winner could not rest his tired muscles. They wrapped him in the flag of his country, placed a laurel wreath on his head, and forced him to make one more round of the track. Kolomainen ran around tiredly in his fantastic costume and reminded one of a Greek god who, dressed in a Roman toga, had just flown down from Olympus. The crowd wildly cheered him, and the fanatic sports lovers passed him from hand to hand. It's surprising he ever managed to survive the great honor. So, I mean, I guess the point there is it's like, kind of a jerk move to make someone who's collapsing run another lap. I mean, they could have at least at least, uh, given him like a piggyback ride, right? I feel less bad for mixing up uh, Greek and Roman earlier, now that I've heard them also do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, why yeah. is the Greek god coming down in a Roman toga? <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'm just saying, like... He's on vacation. Well, okay, we're gonna get to... Into Kent the future? We're yes. gonna talk a little bit about Kent Hughes, because he was kind of an idiot. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, way to make me feel bad again. <laughs> oh, well, it says he was Australian, so... Um... No, he was like, uh, he was an idiot. No, right, that's, me... that follows. Yeah. What? I'm just here to offend every single person who might listen to this podcast. I don't think we have any listeners in Australia, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, okay, so... No, that attitude. Kent Hughes is another character I want to talk you about. You can drop leaflets in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> Olympicsizepodcast.tumblr.net. I think it's dot com. I, we do have it on Tumblr. <laughs> oh. All right. 
but I can't remember what the URL is. Um, despite the fact that he never medaled in any Olympic event. Sir Wilfred Selwyn Bill, excuse me, Kent Hughes was born in 1895. In 1914, at the age of 19, he was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship, but deferred it to serve in the military in the Australian Army. During that time, among other things, he served in the 3rd Light Horse Brigade in Gallipoli, where he was wounded. Oh, yeah, that's a name that people have probably even heard of for its really famous, brutal, horrifying battle. Yeah, Uh, and in 1917, well, like, every battle that you've heard of from World War I was incredibly brutal. Yeah, and this was one of them. Yeah, and in 1917, he was awarded the Military Cross for, quote, marked ability and energy in the performance of his duties. He ended up attending Oxford in 1919, and while attending university, was also was an amateur track and field athlete, thus his participating in the 1920 Olympics. He also joined the Oxford ski team in 1921 and was the first Australian to compete in skiing overseas. He returned to Australia in 1923, married Edith Kerr, a wealthy American heiress, and began working at his father's publishing company and his political career. On his first election in 1927, when he was elected to the Victorian... Legislative Assembly as a member of the Nationalist Party. Uh, Kent Hughes was not shy about criticizing his fellow Nationalist Party members or the Labor Party members, referring to them as such. He openly referred to a number of his fellow Nationalists as, quote, boneheads, and opposition Labor Party members as, quote, uncouth, semi-educated, ill-mannered, narrow-minded bores. These are good dunks. (laughs) Once the United Australia Party, UAP, was formed, he jumped ship for them. He held several positions when they were in power and when he was the Minister for Sustenance, an office designed to deal with the extreme poverty caused by the Great Depression, his austere policies earned him the nickname, quote, Minister for Starvation. Hmm. He drafted legislation that ended up being, quote, the harshest piece of legislation in Australia directed toward the unemployed during the Depression. He also picked a fight during this time with the Australian Cricket Board of Control that had something to do with how they were handling some controversy between the Australian and English cricket teams that I do not understand because I don't understand cricket at all. Do we need to, like, uh, explain austerity policies to the listeners? It's essentially... When your country's in rough shape, you just starve out the poor until yeah, they die. Pretty much, I yeah. feel like, I don't know if that's common knowledge, so that term may have not made sense in okay. context. Yeah. So yeah, so, so this guy, I'm done oh, with oh, him. He's, he gets better. Oh, uh, what? Worse. During this time, he started getting interested in fascism. <laughs> In 1933, published a series of articles in the Melbourne Herald titled... Melbourne. Melbourne Herald, titled, Why I Have Become a Fascist. Well, at least he's up front about it. But the thing is, he doesn't seem to understand what fascism is. Well, at least he's an idiot. (laughs) His entire experience with it at the time is hearing his Uncle Ernest's stories about his travels in Mussolini's Italy. So the racist uncle strikes again. <laughs> yeah. In one of his articles, he says that fascism, quote, endeavors to avoid the egotistical attitude of laissez-faire and the inertia of socialism. Avoiding egos is literally the opposite of fascism. <laughs> I mean, the, he got the socialism part right uh, in that sentence, I that guess. fascism doesn't... It, doesn't like socialism? Yeah, but yeah. like... Okay. He des- and describes it as, quote... 
a halfway house between the two systems. Mm. Which, <laughs> which is not what it is. Mm. It is not halfway between laissez-faire capitalism and socialism. Those things, I mean, there's not really, like, a line between those two points you can put fascism on. <laughs> yes. Welcome to our politics podcast. Yeah. Uh, his biographer, Frederick Howard, notes that despite his public self-identification as fascist, he never joined any fascist political organizations, behaved in ways that could be described as fascist, and never expressed any kind of anti-Semitism. Ultimately, Howard concludes that he didn't really understand what fascism was and only used the term for its shock value. I kind of have this picture of this dude. He goes to, like, some fascist political party and he's like, yeah, I'm a fascist. And then they're all, like, terrible. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, you guys are terrible. I, this is not the right fascist party for me. And then just, like, doing this over and over <laughs> again and, like, bouncing out of all of them. It was, and, like, never really getting it. Yeah, it was not... It, the shock value he got was not shocking enough to damage his political like, career. He kept getting also, elected. Also, Australia has a lot of really hardcore... Yeah. Play, like, you don't... You're not getting a lot of shock value benefit out of this, no, I would think. No, no. In 1939, he rejoined the army. He was served in the Pacific Theater and was taken prisoner by the Japanese army in 1942. Hmm. After that, his time in the war was all in prisoner of war camps being sent around to labor camps in different parts of the of japanese occupied territory he wrote an account of this uh the title is uh, somehow slaves of the samurai an australian odyssey after cool. the yeah <laughs> after the war he returned to australia and politics one of the more notable things he did in 1946 was testify on behalf of general gordon bennett who was accused of cowardice and desertion after leaving Singapore without authorization before it fell to the Japanese. Ken Hughes argued that Bennett was right to do whatever he needed to do to avoid being taken prisoner. Uh, Bennett was later found to be unjustified in his retreat. Uh, Yeah, I don't think I don't want to get captured is a good reason to disobey orders in the military. Yeah, but I mean, this guy was a POW of the people who would have caught him. Oh, okay. And he's like, I don't blame this guy for getting the hell and out. I don't either. I 100% approve of his choice. But yeah. this is a military tribunal, right? So that's not really yeah. going to fly. Yeah. Kent Hughes was knighted for his service during the war and was extremely involved in proving benefits for ex-servicemen, particularly those who had been prisoners of war. He also participated in Anzac Day celebrations, wearing his World War I uniform and riding on horseback in the parade. He returned to politics and joined the Labor Party, no longer espousing fascist sympathies. Well, I guess we found out what it takes to what beat did... that lesson into his head, and it's being a POW for fascists. What did we learn here today? Um... <laughs> Uh, but we will hear from him again when we get to the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne Kent Hughes was a hurdler but did not medal in either of the two events we already talked about how the American sweep we already talked about the American sweep of the 400 meter hurdles in the 110 meter hurdles the Americans did very well with Frederick Murray winning bronze and Harold Barron winning silver but it was Canadian Earl Thompson who took the gold he set an Olympic record and world record in the final running at 14.8 Unfortunately, at the flag ceremony, the Belgian officials discovered they had no Canadian flag and used a British flag instead. That's probably fine. (laughs) 
Thompson was the favorite going in, but he had overcome significant odds to get there. When he was 14, he suffered a near-fatal accident when he stepped off a buggy onto a loaded shotgun. The gun discharged... <laughs> what? Is... What? Yeah. Uh, the gun discharged in the left side of his chest. He underwent an emergency four-hour surgery immediately afterward and managed to pull through. That's right. You're distracted. Was there a shotgun just strapped to the side for, like, defense against bandits? Or, I, I like, guess. someone left one on a stoop? I'm just... The gun safety here seems poor. Uh, yeah. Uh, Canada. What can I say? This, yeah, it... the lawless wasteland <laughs> that is Canada. But this is a little like Canada in, like, 1910 or something. Hmm. So I don't know exactly where this was. Um, this would be Thompson's only Olympics as a competitor, but he would go on to coach at Dartmouth, West Virginia, and the U.S. Naval Academy. West yes. Virginia. And yes, my cat is snoring. Mount That's the mama. sound you're hearing. Oh, no, I figured, I figured that out a minute ago. It's fine. And the 3,000-meter steeplechase was a rarely held event. At these Olympics, it was held on the grass just inside the cinder track. Ernesto Ambrosini of Italy led after the first lap, but Percy Hodge of Great Britain took over after that and did not give it up. Hodge won gold, Patrick Flynn of the U.S. beat out Ambrosini for the silver, and Ambrosini himself took bronze. The Americans were expected to win the 4x100-meter uh, relay, and they did, setting a new world record in the process. France took silver and Sweden bronze. Great Britain was the favorite for the 4x400-meter relay, and they won, with, the South with South Africa coming in for in second with for Bevel Rudd's silver medal, and France winning bronze. The cross-country race was supposed to be 10 kilometers, but the course ended up only being about 8 kilometers. Joseph Guillemo and Pavo Normi were set for another battle until Guillemo sprained his ankle about three kilometers in and had to withdraw. Normi won the gold, and uh, Eric Backman of Sweden won silver, and Heike... Oh God, there's so many vowels. Limatinen of Finland winning bronze. The medals for the cross-country team race were determined by the individual athlete's placement in the individual race. This was calculated based on where the top three finishers from each team placed. Uh, Finland won the gold for the team race, Great Britain silver, and Sweden bronze. There was a 3,000 meter team race as well that was run as a team race, as there were no 3,000 meter individual medal awarded. The United States took gold in that with Great Britain winning silver and Sweden again with bronze. The 10,000 meter and 3,000 meter speed walks was more entertaining, mostly due to the crowd favorite, gold medal champion in both events, Ugo Frigerio of Italy. The 10,000 kilometer was held first. American Joseph Pearman led for the first half of the race before Frigerio overtook him and won by over half a lap. And these are, you said these are all races? Yes. These are all real sports? Yes. Cool. Uh, for the 3,000 kilometer held two days later, Frigerio upped the antics. He preferred... To walk at a certain tempo, and before the race, gave several pages of sheet music to the band conductor for the band that was performing in the infield. This was Fregario's workout mix. And we have an uh, excerpt that starts on page 73 for you to read there. It, so there. first, yeah, I want to, um, regardless of the answer to this follow-up question, like, giving somebody your gym workout track to play live in front of the Olympics is a pretty ball or power move no this guy is great right <laughs> like yes mad props i want to do be clear here uh this is a 3000 meter um speed walking speed and walk. 10, now, 
So it differs from the previous. No, it's not. Of, no, it's it's uh three thousand kilometer. Wait, no, wait, no, yeah, three k, ten k. I'm sorry, yeah, three thousand meter, or three kilometer. But those other ones were races, and this is some kind of speed walk. Walk off. Yeah. But these other ones were real. I'm giving you this because I know how much you love the speed walk. But I want to make sure this guy at least won some real sports. The first set of races were no, running. He, all he does is speed walking. Ah. Okay, fine. Right. And he likes to walk at a specific tempo, and that's why the band has to play his music. That is maybe the only way to salvage this <laughs> quote-unquote sport. I will give him that. Uh, if the orchestra was not playing in the right tempo, Ugo would then turn off in front of them and seriously reproach the conductor. <laughs> He reacted smilingly to the shouts of the audience and began discussions with an occasional spectator, if that sort of thing can be termed a discussion. Finally, the spectators came to like him to such an extent they began to cheer him. If, when he passed the biggest stand, the spectators for some reason forgot to cheer him, he himself would call out, Eviva! Eviva! So... So... So he ah. would also cheerlead for himself. You've got... Nothing else to do during a speed quote unquote walk. <laughs> okay, so we have jumping. I wonder if this whole thing was an elaborate distraction so he could then cheat at speed walking. <laughs> He's by drawing running. everybody's attention to him. How is he going to do this? He's that's misdirection. He's misdirecting the attention onto himself, okay. the parts of himself that aren't his feet. With Ray Yuri long retired, we're moving on to jumping. There were no standing jumping events at these or any other Olympics going forward. The events <laughs> solidified into the standard. High jump, broad or long jump, triple jump, and tr pole vault. There were no records set in the long jump. American Sol Butler was a favorite, but only took one jump at these Olympics. In the qualifiers, he landed wrong and injured himself so badly he had to withdraw. In his absence, the gold went to Petish... Uh, Swedish athlete William Peterson Bjornemann, although his gold medal distance was one that Butler could have easily beat. Carl Johnson of the U.S. took silver, and Eric Abramson of the of Sweden took bronze. Richmond Dick Landon of the U.S. set an Olympic record in the high jump with his gold medal performance of 1.936 meters, or 6 feet 4 and 1 quarter inches. Uh, Dick was the nickname for Ritzman favorites. Yes. That, okay, I, for a second I thought his middle name, and I was <laughs> going to say that's excessive. <laughs> Harold, Mull Harold Muller of the U.S. earned silver, and Bo Eklund of Sweden won bronze. But the more fun story about Landon is that he's one half of the first Olympic sweethearts. On the ship over, he met New Alan... recurring segment? What? New recurring segment? Maybe. Olympic Sweethearts? I, I mean, it's going it? to be easier the more women that are around, I think. Uh, because, like, obviously I would not assume that all these guys were straight, but they certainly weren't out. <laughs> sure. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, on the ship over, he met Alice Lord, an American diver. They fell in love and were later married. Aww. Yes, it's cute. American Frank Foss was a heavy favorite going into the pole vault, and he did not disappoint. Not only did he win the gold, but he also set a new Olympic record and a new world record with his highest jump at 4.09 meters. Edwin Myers, the U.S., took bronze with a jump of 3.6 meters, which was surprising as he had qualified with a jump of 4 meters and would have gotten silver if he managed to match that. Instead, it went to Henry Peterson of Denmark, who cleared 3.7 meters. And just for the visualization, that gold medal jump was about 13 feet 4 inches. Yeah, 3.7 meters. Yeah. 
Daniel Ahern, originally of Ireland but competing for America, was a world record holder in the triple jump. His brother Tim, who had not emigrated, had set the Olympic world record back in 1908 in London. Daniel did not medal this time, possibly due to being nearly thrown off the team. Uh, the Americans were not satisfied with their Spartan accommodations in Antwerp. They had protested to the Olympic officials, but those protests had been ignored. The Olympics had a 10 p.m. curfew, but one night Ahern had not returned at all. Instead, he had booked himself a room in a local tavern and stayed there. So he was booted from the team. At this, the entire American team threatened to withdraw if he were not reinstated and if they were not given better accommodations. I don't know what happened with the rooms, but Ahern was allowed to compete. So... The rooms were so bad that when someone just failed to a different inn, they were just like, we're going to side with them, actually. Yeah. <laughs> he came in sixth. Vilo Tulos of Finland won gold with a jump that didn't even come close to Ahern's record. Swedish athletes Folke Johnson took silver and Eric Amrof took bronze. Throwing. The throwing events consisted of shot put, discus, hammer throw, 56-pound weight throw, and javelin. Irish-Americans were well represented in these events, as the influence of our favorite Joe Flanagan was still being felt. It's the uh, New York cop who, like, just got all the other Irish-American New York cops to throw heavy things at the Olympics. Caber toss. Uh, that's Scottish. Um, Pat McDonald, one <laughs> of the... I feel like I made that mistake last time. And probably. Uh, Pat McDonald, one of the aforementioned Irish Americans, was a favorite in the shot put. He was a five-time U.S. champion in the sport and held an Olympic record. Unfortunately, not long before these Olympics, he had injured his hand and ended up coming in fourth. Oh, God, there's somebody coming up with three umlauts. Uh, Finnish athlete. <laughs> On the same, uh, uh, same, same lane, Same name. Uh, Can you stack umlauts? Stack, no, no. <laughs> They're like multiple, like every vowel has an umlaut in that name. Uh, Finnish athletes took the top two spots with Vila Perharlar taking gold <laughs> and Elmer Nicklander taking silver. American Harry Liversedge of America managed to get bronze. Nicklander did one better in discus and won gold with teammate Armas Taipale winning silver. Augustus Pope of the U.S. won bronze. A great showdown between Americans Pat Ryan and Ma Matt McGrath was expected in Hammer Throw. They had a great rivalry that lasted from 1908 to 1926, where between the two of them, they won 15 of the 19 AAU championships, Ryan winning eight and McGrath winning seven. Ooh. But in the second round, McGrath injured his knee and had to withdraw. Ryan won easily. Farrow fellow American Basil Bennett, one, took bronze, and Carl Lind of Sweden locked the sweep when he won silver. McGrath was also the favorite in the 56-pound weight throw, but due to his knee injury in the hammer throw, did not compete. Pat McDonald of the U.S. took gold, with Pat Ryan winning silver and Carl Lind taking bronze. Javelin was swept by the Finns, and apparently this was the beginning of total dominance of Javelin by the Finns. Although, unlike the Hungarian dominance of Saber, I haven't found any sort of description of this. So we will See how long this lasts, I guess. Uh, Yoni Mira, Mira, it's an A with an umlaut, won gold. Erho Peltonen won silver, and Pavo Pekka Johansson Jale won silver with. Geez, I, the, I have no idea how to say Finnish names. Like, it's just. I don't know where the emphasis is supposed to be. There's like a million umlauts, and. They never look close to anything I recognize, so it's... I'm sorry, anybody listening from Finland. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds I'm trying my best. Uh, Julius uh, and Julius Saristo, also of Finland, coming in fourth for good measure. The most incredible out of all these was Mirer, who not only set a new Olympic record with his gold medal performance, he did it with a broken arm. (laughs) As he had gotten speared in the left arm by American James Lincoln, who was practicing while Mira was lying in the grass. I was about to make the comment that with this age of dominance, we're probably not going to see the kinds of spears and lances thrown into the crowds and passerbys and trees that we saw back in Paris. But apparently, no, that would have been premature. Because he just decided to take a nap in the grass where people were practicing javelin. That is admittedly um, ill-advised, I guess. I don't want to blame the victim here. But uh, Was that not a thing you would see coming? I don't know. I will say, like, we have moved past also the having to throw the two javelins symmetrically with both arms, right? Yeah, so, no, that's just the sweet. As long like as that. it's the non-dominant arm, maybe you're fine? <laughs> well, I mean, you use your whole body. You move your other arm. I mean, you would know. You did the, the yeah, I mean, I throwing didn't do sports. It well, but, like, <laughs> but I, you're... It's not like dead weight at your side. You move your other well, arm. Well, it was for him. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like... Bumble, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, this is... Okay, our last event is decathlon and pentathlon. Originally, the plan was only to have pe- a pentathlon. They thought the five-event sport would be more than enough for the multi-eventers, but then they had the, the decathlon. Anyway. The ten events of the decathlon were 100-meter sprint, long jump, shot put, high jump, 400-meter race, 110-meter hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, and a 1,500-meter race. It was held on the 20th and 21st of August. It's nuts. You say that with an inflection that makes me think it's hot and humid and not great for all of those No, because these Olympics are cold. It's pretty far north, Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. No, it was just that there were ten events in two days. It's like five per day. It's That's like a one, lot. It's like one every two hours. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, the you like the 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 modern pentathlon spread out over like what like six days or something like it took. Right, but remember, I'm coming at this from the angle of like we these sports are better where it's one continuous thing. So right, in my yeah. mind, this is like three days too many. Brutus Hamilton. Led- Apologies to all actual athletes who know that this is. <laughs> Brutus Hamilton led after most of the events, and it wasn't until the final race that the Helga Lovland of Norway, I think, I don't know, that's one of those O's with a slash through it, so... Is like that the a, null sign? Yeah, I don't know. It's, mm. an, it's an accent that I don't know how to say. Helga Lovland of Norway managed to overtake him to win the gold in the closest finish in Olympic decathlon history. At 30 years old, Loveland would hold the record as the oldest gold medal winner for the decathlon until 1988. Loveland was also a military officer and in 1943, during the Nazi occupation of Norway, was arrested during a crackdown on Norwegian military officers. He survived this and lived until 1984. Also, in an interview many years after the Olympics, he was asked if he could have defeated Jim Thorpe in his prime. Loveland replied, oh no, <laughs> he was too good. Uh, Brutus Hamilton of the U.S. won silver and Bertil Olsen of Sweden won bronze. Loveland also competed in the pentathlon on August 16th, though he didn't medal. 
the pentathlon consisted of long jump, javelin, 200 meter race, discus, and the 1500 meter race. Eero Latonen of Finland was second after the long jump behind Brutus Hamilton, but after the javelin, he had moved into first place and stayed there the rest of the competition. He won easily. But the battle for the next five places was so tight, they had to go to tiebreaker scores to figure out places two through six. Oh, that's not a good sign. We're not really great at tiebreakers <laughs> or second place or math on this set of games. Yeah. Everett Bradley of the U.S. got silver when it was all said and done, and Hugo Latinen of Finland bronze. Robert Legendre of the U.S. came in fourth, and then Loveland in fifth, and Hamilton in sixth. We're going to talk about this and then the wrap-up. There is one athlete who competed at the 1920 Olympics who achieved a feat over the course of his career that nobody before or since has matched. Philip Noel Baker was a runner and won silver in the 1500 meter. The son of a Quaker, he had not served during World War I as a soldier. Instead, he was a conscientious objector. He volunteered at the front as a medical orderly driving an ambulance. He organized and led the Friends Ambulance Unit from 1914 to 1915, Friends being the Quaker... Um, They'll, they'll go by friends sometimes. And then from 1916 to 1918, he was an adjutant for the first British ambulance unit in Italy, associated with the British Red Cross. For his service, he was awarded medals by the French, British, and Italian militaries. After the war, he participated in the forming of the League of Nations. He not only won a medal in 1920, but he was also the captain of the track team and carried the flag in the opening ceremonies. He would return as captain in the 1924 Olympics, but not compete. After the Olympics, he focused on his political career, serving as a, in a number of elected and appointed offices. Noel Baker was always a pacifist and a scholar of history. Leading up to World War II, he spoke out repeatedly against using aerial warfare against uh, the Axis powers, arguing that the only way to prevent atrocities from the air is to abolish air warfare and national air forces altogether. After World War II, he served on the British delegation for what would become the United Nations. He was a member of the Labour Party, serving in various positions until 1948, when he lost the position due in large part to his dedication to multilateral disarmament in opposition to the party's advocation of unilateral disarmament. So unilateral disarmament is like, I think, like we're going to give up our nukes. Um, and multilateral disarmament is he's like, how about nobody has weapons at all? <laughs> I think is what the difference is. Interesting. I mean, I certainly can understand that maybe you don't want to start using planes to kill people. Yeah. Just keep it to like observational balloons <laughs> might solve our drone problem. Yeah. Multilateral disarmament was a driving cause of Noel Baker's career until he retired from public life in the 80s, and this is why he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, the only person to ever win an Olympic medal and the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, nice. Yeah. He also serves as a good example for the changing nature of the Olympics. After World War I, the West was in tatters. The former empires were destroyed or in a state of collapse that would continue for the rest of the century. The Olympics emerged as something wholly different from the imperial celebrations of the World Fairs, a sort of fantasy of what humanity could accomplish without violence and oppression. Just what humans could do in a perfect world where teamwork and camaraderie and honest competition were the whole point. Does the that mean that we are not going to get any more human zoos at Olympics? Because no more human zoos. I'm, yes. Okay. Good. That's not... I've been worried. Yeah. 
but it's not what it is, of course. We haven't achieved that fantasy or anything close to it. Not even 1920, when the wounds from the previous horrific war were still too fresh on the landscape and on the athletes to allow their former rivals to attend. Uh, but even with that, the step was an important one in healing those wounds, at least for now, at least until the next even more horrific war. And we're going to do a special note about Bill Mallon. Uh, we've re referenced him in his incredible series of books about the early Olympics and uh, the, the 1920 um, uh, records of the 1920 games were what we used, I used primarily for this. Uh, I'm a little nervous about continuing this podcast without that resource. Before Bill Mallon started his series, the results of the early modern Olympics, there was no comprehensive work about what happened at the Olympics from 1896 to 1920. The IOC now releases an official report, uh, and they did in 1920, but it was really not hmm. uh, comprehensive. So this was the last of Mallon's books, then? He wrote other books, but this is the last of these particular right. series. Because the slack is being picked up by the official reports? Yeah. Reasonably um, well, so yes. next time? Okay. Uh, starting in 1924, the IOC actually gets their act together on uh, releasing the records, <laughs> or keeping the records and releasing them. Bill, Mallet, Bill Mallon was an athlete in his own right. He went to Duke and was a golfer, a two-time All-American. Later, he went pro, playing from 1976 to 1979, and played the U.S. Open, placing 53rd. After retiring from his golfing career, he went back to school and earned a medical degree. He was an orthopedic surgeon specializing in complex reconstructive shoulder and elbow surgery. He doesn't practice anymore, but he does serve on some boards and edits medical journals and other things surgeons do when they don't do surgery anymore. <laughs> Uh, Mallon has written 24 books on the history of the Olympics, some of which we've used extensively, and I'm sure we will be referencing some of his other works in the future. He is a leading authority on the Olympics. He co-founded and served as president of the International Society of Olympic Historians. He was a historical consultant for the 1996 Atlanta Games and the 2000 Sydney Games. He has been a consultant statistician to the IOC, and the IOC awarded him the Olympic Order in Silver uh, in 2001 for his services to the Olympic movement. This podcast would have been impossible without his work, so thanks, Bill. Nice. Now, is that the uh, Olympic equivalent of, like, knighting him, essentially? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, you don't win a medal in... Um... Here's a gold medal in covering for our Oops. terrible incompetence <laughs> for the first 40 years of our existence. It wasn't 40, it was like 24. That's like 40, according to their math. Okay, true. Okay, and and that's it for 1920, and I'm going to be doing my best to get this together, but, you know, it's going to be a while before I have consistent hours that I know I can research, so just subscribe, and, you know, you'll get it when I get it, as soon as I can get it together for you. Leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, right. iTunes, Podstitcher, Lime Bean... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Whatever you're listening to this on. Five stars only. Unless it's out of ten. Then ten stars. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Olympic Size Cast at Twitter. We have uh, email us at OlympicSizePodcast at gmail.com. And we have a Tumblr somewhere. But I...